Are you ready to rumble? In this corner, we have the main Dane in the game. Soren Kierkegaard and his night fate. And in this corner, we have the determined German, Friedrich Nietzsche and his Ubermensch. It's an existentialist exhibition match. The Christian versus the atheist, the sideburns versus the mustache, and the stakes are eternal. Fight! Okay, what'd you think? Wow. Did you like that intro? Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I just now remembered that we're going to talk about this. Uh, I've prepared some stuff. Did you prepare something else? I, I, had some, I had some thoughts about what we could talk about, but I completely forgot. And quite honestly, I didn't prepare for this. Okay, well that's okay. Uh, I have prepared um, a bit, and so you can just follow my lead. Okay, just, that sounds good. I'll ask you questions this time instead of you always asking me questions. All right. Okay. So today I think we should have a philosophical boxing match, if you will. Um, so it'll be Kierkegaard and his Knight of Faith, which is a character... Or, more specifically, an idea of a person uh, expressed in his works, namely Fear and Trembling. And the Ubermensch is um, a character or an idea of a character that is expressed by Nietzsche in his works, namely Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, and... What I think we see is that there there are a lot of similarities between these two, even though if you know anything about Nietzsche or Kierkegaard, you would think that they would be complete opposites. You see, Kierkegaard was a Christian, um, while Nietzsche was famous for saying, God is dead. And so at face value, they couldn't seem any more different. But I think there's a lot of similarities to Kierkegaard's Night of Faith and Nietzsche's Ubermensch. John, do you know anything about these two? Yeah, I know I know a little bit about Kierkegaard's Man of Faith, but I don't or Night of Faith, but I don't know much about the Ubermensch. Okay, can you explain the Night of Faith to me? Okay, so if I remember correctly, the Night of Faith, as Kierkegaard says in Fear and Trembling is essentially the man who lives by faith, right? And just embodies the concept of walking by faith but and not by sight. And Kierkegaard says that this man, this man looks just like anyone else does, right? This man maybe wears the same clothes, maybe does the same things every day, maybe has a lot of the same habits, and you wouldn't be able to recognize him if you caught a glimpse of him on the street, but there is something fundamentally different about him, and it's the fact that he walks by faith and not by sight. Okay. Is, is, that, is that right? Um, yeah, I guess. That's part of it. But okay. What am, what am I missing? Well, I think you're missing kind of what makes a knight of faith 
a knight of faith rather than someone who has some faith. You see, okay. Kierkegaard recognizes just how difficult becoming a knight of faith is. In fact, he he claims there are just a handful in history. Okay. Namely Abraham, which he discusses at length in Fear and Trembling, which we've talked about several times on this podcast, but it's a very interesting read. I recommend it. Um, he recognizes that even Kierkegaard himself isn't a knight of faith. But he also recognizes that that's the goal to be strived for. So what is this knight is, of faith is, and how does it make... What is this knight of faith and how is it different than someone who believes but lacks that certain quality? So okay, Kierkegaard says that this knight of faith is the individual and he stresses that. That's very important. This person is alone. This person makes the infinite leap of faith, first requiring infinite resignation toward a goal, saying, this thing that I'm striving for is impossible. That's the first step, infinite resignation. He gives the example of a man um, who's in love with a girl, and um, this guy recognizes that there's no possible way for him to marry this girl because she's like a princess and is engaged to someone else. Okay. He has infinitely resigned meaning. He has seen it as impossible. If there was any way that it was possible, infinite resignation would be impossible because there's some small chance, but there's no chance with him. So that's the first step. And people who reach this step are seen as knights of infinite resignation, meaning they've reached that step and what it would look like for this guy who's in love with a girl when meaning I know that I cannot reach her, I know that I cannot be with her, but I still love her and maybe we'll be together in uh, the next life. Something okay. like that. The okay. knight of faith, on the other hand, is just that, faith. He believes that even though this is impossible, and it's important to recognize that it is impossible, that will still be achieved, not just in the afterlife, but here on earth. See, um, you read a, a quote previously, and I just kind of want to read it again. This is from Fear and Trembling. It says, No one who was great in the world will be forgotten, but everyone was great in his own way, and everyone in proportion to the greatness of that which he loved. He who loved himself became great by virtue of himself, and he who loved other men became great by his devotedness, but he who loved God became greatest of all. Everyone shall be remembered, but everyone became great in proportion to his expectancy. One became great by expecting the, the possible. Another by expecting the eternal, that would be the night of infinite resignation. But he who expected the impossible became greatest of all. Everyone shall be remembered, but everyone who is, whole, who is great wholly in proportion to the magnitude 
of that which he struggled. For he who struggled with the world became great by conquering the world. And he who struggled with himself became great by conquering himself. But he who struggled with God became greatest of all. So this faith is not just a faith in the, not just a faith in the eternal, but a faith in here on this world as well. Later okay. in the book, he, he talks about how, in reference to repentance, the person, the night of infinite resignation, people who have faith have recognized, have repented, and that takes all of their strength to repent. And in a sense, they leave this world, meaning they are not of this world. But he says the night of faith repents, leaves this world, but yet comes back, meaning he comes back to minister, to to spread the gospel, to continue in this world, even though he, even though other people who have faith have lost hope in the world. So what ex- what exactly is the impossible task? The impossible task is salvation. Okay. It is impossible for us to be saved. Now. Okay. The thing is if you truly repent and if you have faith you must have infinite resignation, meaning you recognize that that is impossible. The night well, of faith. What's impossible? Recognize that you cannot save yourself; that you are wholly sinful. Right. And you repent and yeah. trust in God. Now, I'm going to talk about. I'm going to explain Nietzsche's. Um, Ubermensch. Okay. Nietzsche's Ubermensch follows from his um, philosophy that God is dead. I'm just going to read something from his work, The Gay Science, um, and then I'll explain the Ubermensch. Okay, so this is his little story called The Madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? They yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backwards, sideways, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we... Not saying as though an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet the divine decomposition 
gods too decompose. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. So this is Nietzsche explaining that because he believed science had and society had killed God in a sense that there is no fundamental basis for our morality. And he recognizes that that's a problem. Uh, many people today will deny that that's a problem, but even Nietzsche recognized that that was an issue. Now, his solution was the Ubermensch. The Ubermensch right. is this, not not a man, but beyond man, which is where you get Ubermensch, Uber being beyond, and Mensch being man, um, who okay. is able to create his own values, and more importantly, create justification for those values without the basis of God or anything eternal, but to create an eternal value based on himself. This is an infinite leap he recognizes, which is why he says it requires not humans, but beyond humans. Right. Which, in a way, is similar to Kierkegaard's Night of Faith, which requires an ultimate leap of faith. See, Nietzsche recognizes that this is an individual, and he must be able to justify his creation of values without God or anything eternal. Okay. Um, there are other similarities between these two idealized people. One is that both person suspends the ethical, meaning that they seem to do things that are against conventional ethics, such as Abraham obeying God to sacrifice Isaac um, and Nietzsche's Ubermensch completely disregarding ethics in favor of them doing what they believe is right to their own values. Wait. Nietzsche doesn't... He wouldn't believe that ethics exists, though, right? He believes that it exists in the mind of ordinary men. But he says that Ubermensch recognized that there is no ethics. Oh, so Nietzsche would have to say that ethics don't exist. If, you, if you're going to say that they don't exist in, in the mind of this Ubermensch, then I think he's also saying this is reality. I think he tries to believe that, but along with Kierkegaard, Nietzsche recognizes that he is not an Ubermensch. So even though he thinks that there is no ethics, his life still reflects, reflects some ethics, even though he's striving against that, paradoxically. Okay. Another similarity is that both the Knight of Faith and the Ubermensch are focused on this world and not just a future life. Nietzsche's strong criticism of Christianity comes from its focus on another world disregarding this one. That would be Kierkegaard's night of infinite resignation, focusing on the eternal rather than what's here on this world. Right. Um, both 
are viewed by their respective philosophers as free and able individuals, meaning they are free from whatever binds them. In Kierkegaard's sense, that would be sin and determinism. He was saying God gave us free will, and the Knight of Faith uses that free will. And Nietzsche's bondage would come from ethics, what he believes. And he believes that Ubermensch is above that, and that recognizes that ethics isn't a thing, and lives that way, and creates their own value. Um, both also believe that the salvation, in a sense, is bestowed to the individual alone and cannot be transferred from one individual to another, meaning that you can't join a group and be saved by the group. No salvation comes to the individual. So those, I believe, are the similarities. Do you see any others? Uh, I see more... I think I see more differences than similarities. Yeah. Well, the differences are the important things, I believe. But you have to admit, the similarities are very striking. In fact, on uh, when I was researching this, the Night of Faith Wikipedia page had, under the See Also section, it had the Ubermensch. And on the Ubermensch Wikipedia page, under See Also, it had Night of Faith. So. Really? Yeah. I I didn't... I, I was just reading Fear and Trembling, and I had read part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I haven't finished it, but it just suddenly clicked, and I was like, these are very similar, but the differences are extremely significant. So tell me this. Isn't the Knight of Faith bound by obedience to God? Can you elaborate? Well, maybe, as you said earlier, the Knight of Faith has the ability to deny ethics in a sense, but if you look at Abraham, Abraham was only able to do that because God gave him a command that would deny your typical ethics. The knight of faith doesn't just act in a vacuum by himself. Everything he, he does is really based on obedience to God, isn't it? I believe so, but I also believe that the knight of faith has used his free will to choose be obedient to god okay okay but at the same time for the night of faith the obedience to god is is what's good right yeah and so the night of faith has something to lean on he has defined maybe not clear but defined right and wrong good and bad to choose from and that defined right his case is obedience so I'm about to. So well, defined right, and right, wrong, yes, no, 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 right and not, wrong. I'm not telling you to define. I'm saying oh. yes, he has defined right and wrong, but I think a lot of times that right, right, and right and wrong isn't clear, especially to outsiders. Right, but he knows what the goal is. Yes, he has a basis for his value system. Okay, so here's here's what I want to say about the Ubermensch. So these, the concept of the Ubermensch reminds me a lot of the Greek myth of Atlas. Will, do you know who Atlas is? Yes, he's the Titan who is cursed by being punished to hold up the world on his shoulders. 
Right, right. Okay, so that is what I see the ubermensch as. The ubermensch is the one who is forced to define value for humanity itself, define ethical value, and define what what exactly has worth in the world. But what is the ubermensch standing on, right? As the ubermensch carries the world and has the weight of the world on his shoulders, just like Atlas, on what ground is he standing? Because I don't, I, I've never heard a, a version of the myth where where it talks about the ground upon which Atlas stood as he bore the weight of the world. The Ubermensch has no ground to stand on. His feet are firmly planted in midair, aren't see, they? Exactly. And I would say Nietzsche even understood that because he recognizes that is what the infinite leap requires, is being able to have no basis yourself be the basis in a sense become the god that society has killed right but nietzsche is has then defined essentially the ubermensch as god because it is god alone who can exist in his own right so in denying the existence of god in one sense he's asserting it in the other yeah it is the ultimate pride in fact, that is the ultimate pride, and in Kierkegaard's Night of Faith, that's the ultimate humility, if you think is, about it. Is what? Complete surrender to God, unhesitatingly. Giving up everything you value for God, but still having enough faith to believe that you will get that back in this world. To get what back? What you valued that you gave up to God. Okay. See, I think I had a problem with this when I was reading Free and yeah, Trembling. I, I did too. This is this is, is that you you cannot you cannot surrender to God in that sense. I, That's it's it's actually mentally impossible because if you're going to surrender to god god has to be that which you value most okay right so if you surrender that which you value most to god you're you haven't done it like the nature of the question excludes it excludes the answer okay i agree and i believe even kierkegaard agrees that's why he keeps referring to the paradox of the night of faith he gives the example of the rich young ruler if right if the rich young ruler was a knight of infinite resignation was someone who had faith and believed in god he would have given everything he gave to the poor and would follow jesus just like jesus commanded you know right but if he was a knight of faith he would do that immediately yet still have faith that he would gain those riches back in this world. That's what Kierkegaard says. Now, I disagree with that. There's a lot of things I disagree with about both of these, but I still think it's important to talk about them. Okay, what do you disagree with about that? What I disagree with is that after giving up his value of the worth, the wealth that he had, that he would still want that wealth back in this world. Right, right. That's what I don't understand. He gives the example of Abraham also, saying Abraham readily 
is willing to sacrifice Isaac, but still believes that he will have Isaac back in this world. Which, I understand the fact that Kierkegaard thinks it's a paradox, and maybe that's why I can't wrap my head around it, but I can't wrap my head around it. I, I think it falls outside of the bounds of the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know if it does. Because God had what? promised a son to Isaac. I mean, a son to Abraham. Okay. In his old age. Right. So, in a way, loving God would mean loving Isaac and wanting him in this world because that's what God promised him. Okay. Where do you see that those differ? That you can't have the first commandment and the night of faith. Well, I I guess I think about it like this, and I'll just use a simple example to illustrate it. So say you're you're a parent and you have a kid and you ask that kid to to give up his favorite toy to you, okay? Mm-hmm. And you tell the kid that if he gives up his favorite toy to you, he'll get it back, right? You tell the kid that? Yeah, I th- I think you do. Okay. Is is that isn't that what God did with Abraham? Is he said, "I will fulfill my promise to you." Like this promise will come to pass. And so essentially Abraham knew that if he gave up Isaac, he would get something back. Maybe it wasn't Isaac, but but the promise wouldn't be left unfulfilled. But I think Abraham still had faith that it would be Isaac because he loved Isaac more than anything, meaning he loved Isaac, not just the idea of a son. He loved his son. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is, it's tricky. And John, can you define what an existentialist is? Can I define what an existentialist is? Yes. Okay. So existentialism, and I'm reading from the Google definition right now, is a philosophical theory or approach that emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will. Mm-hmm. It's, it comes from a Danish word that means condition of existence. So... If something in, in philosophy is existential, and I'm reading from Google again, that means it's concerned with the existence, especially human existence, as viewed in the theories of existentialism. Yeah. I think a lot of people believe that their life, this world, is predetermined, which the existentialists reject. That the individual can has free will. What do you think about? Okay. What do you think about um, predestination? I have no idea. That's not how life presents itself to us. 
I don't know if it's the right question. Okay. What do you think is the right question? It is is what is the what does the present moment require of me? Okay. What is the moment that I'm living in require of me? What do you predestination mean by... looks toward the future? Okay. That's that's interesting. And in a sense it makes predestination makes sense for us being humans because and this is actually a quote from Kierkegaard is life is understood looking backwards but it's lived going forward right yeah the idea of predestination makes sense because as humans I think we want to look backward on life and, and make sense of things and see threads of of different events coming in into existence and connecting certain events with each other and I think we want to say that we see the plant right we see we see the painting that's developing in our lives just by looking at looking back on the past and and so predestination like the concept itself might come out of a desire to want to make sense of things okay but but life is understood looking backwards and yet it's lived going forward so we can't make sense of the forward without having lived it yet so if we treat people like they are predestined i believe in a sense that's kind of insulting don't you agree yes meaning people if we treat prisoners like they were predestined to commit a crime then would any punishment be justifiable right well, they couldn't control it. So in the last podcast, you talked about facts, intuition, and reasoning, right? I talked about facts, intuition, and reasoning, right. Yeah. So I think we can say from our intuition that treating people like they are predestined seems wrong can we explain why Mm, I, I don't know let me try to piece together what you're saying treating people like they are predestined seems wrong that's an intuition yeah at the same time we don't have all the facts we're missing facts and therefore we can't adequately arrange an argument to say whether or not an action is right or wrong is that kind of what you want to no i was going more at the an argument against predestination because if you look at it from one view you say this causes this this causes this this causes this this causes this and if you believe in a purely materialistic world it's a very difficult argument to say that things are not predestined. Yeah, yeah, you can talk about quantum mechanics and probability rather than determination, but that's on such a small scale that people will generally ignore that. Right. Well, yeah. Do you know what this do you know what this conversation reminds me of? What? 
you remember that story you told about the people who live in a house of cheese with two mice? Yeah, did you read that? Like that? No, no, I just, I just remember you, oh. you telling me the story. Shit. It's and the cheese runs out, and the mice are just like, okay, let's move on, and the people are freaking out about it, mm-hmm. and they just can't seem to get over it, mm-hmm. and so they just keep talking about where the cheese went, and they keep arguing about who stole the cheese, and and and, and they, they just they're stuck in their own ways, mm-hmm. right, and they they can't realize that it's probably better to just move on it's 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 similar to taking a test and coming across a question that kind of tricks you and kind of and you kind of stumble upon and and you really want to get this question right you really you really think you can get it there's something that's eating your mind that tells you hey, I know the answer, it's just not here yet. And you want to spend more time, you want to dig into that question more and more and more. But probably what's best is to keep going on with the test because if it's a time test, then time is running out. And maybe at the end, you can come back to it. And oftentimes when we come back to the question, the question that's been eating us, having, having stepped away for a little bit, we come back with a fresh mind. We come back with a renew mind, renewed mind that's able to approach the question and that's able to find the answer to it more adequately. That's kind of what this reminds me of is predestination, right? We can get trapped in our own, in our own, in the rut of our minds and we can get trapped in our thoughts and just lose our place. It's maybe it's just best to just say, this is just something that we're not going to get. Maybe it's just best to just move on and just live life. Okay. So do you have anything else to say about um, existentialism? Here, actually, I I do. I just want to find it real quick. So I'm writing a paper on culture for my Portuguese class. And I came across this quote by Daniel Yankelvich. Yankelevich, actually. And this quote is from an essay that he writes titled Finding Fulfillment in the Shifting Moods of American Life. He says, Culture is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existential situations that confront all human beings in the passage of their lives. A cultural revolution is one that makes a decisive break with the shared meanings of the past particularly those that relate to the deepest questions of the purpose and nature of human life. So he, he conceives of culture as essentially our answer to existential problems. It's culture is human beings collective answer to existential problems. Mm. And so what existential, what existential problems do we face that 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 makes us answer with culture and gk chesterton in his book orthodoxy actually gives i think the best formulation of existential problems that that we encounter gk chesterton says the the real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is an unreasonable world nor even that it, it is a reasonable one 
The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. Hmm. Life is not an Ill, not life is not an illogicality, yet it is a trap for logicians. It looks just a little more mathematical and regular than it is. Its exactitude is obvious, but its inexactitude is hidden. Its wildest lies in wait. So life, in other words, contains a certain element of speciousness. And speciousness, I actually learned this word when I was studying for the GRE. It means superficially plausible, but actually not. Okay, so life can on the surface look plausible, but if you take, a, you take a, a little bit of time to delve deeper into the surface, you find that there are some things that aren't making as much sense as they would seem to be had you not delved a little bit deeper in. So life is not unreasonable or irrational by any stretch, and oftentimes the world makes total sense. And, and when this is the case, we're able to formulate generalities through the consistency of certain events. And, and we're able to predict the future based on what happens in the past. But at the same time, things don't always make sense, right? Sometimes life throws us a curveball. And when this happens, we find ourselves asking questions that moments ago we seem to have the answers to, or moments ago weren't even in our minds. And so we ask the question, why, over and over again, and search for meaning amidst a maze of complexity. And so, so the existential problem that we encounter is, as G.K. Chesterton says, not that this world is unreasonable, not that it's reasonable either not that it's too predictable but that it's almost reasonable but but that things almost make sense and though they but they don't and so but but at the same time we as humans we like to to put answers to things we like to complete things right we like to solve puzzles we like to finish the maze we like to get to the end and so we solve this problem by creating cultures that explain the world around us. And these cultures actually give us values by which we live oftentimes. And I, 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 just, I think it's interesting how existential problems have a tendency to affect our, affect our behaviors like this. What do you mean? Did anything I said strike Wait, you? Well, what do, what do you mean by existential problems tend to affect our behavior like this? Okay. So, a culture provides a, a, a group of people with their values. Okay. So, uh, take Americans, for example. Robert Coles writes an article titled The Values Americans Live By. And in this article, he talks about how Americans adhere to a distinct set of values that are specific and unique to their individualistic culture. So, right, Americans subscribe to a culture of individualism. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. 
and and because of this individualistic culture or in this individualistic culture we find that Americans tend to value equality and that is largely because as we see in the Do- in the declaration of independence wait i think you should be more specific on equality equality of opportunity but they believe that okay, because people, of opportunity. because people work because they believe in the importance of work and how that impacts your future the outcome is not certain the outcome is a function of your work i think i think americans value social equality as well no no because if they valued social equality they would that's incompatible with the belief that work produces success now what i believe is that that american that american ideal is shifting but the classic american americans are very different from say cultures in the east like the japanese culture where respect for elders right is such a key component of their culture whereas here it's not that we don't respect our elders but we respect our elders as much as you know or maybe just a little bit more than we respect our peers I, I had a friend that I met in, in Portugal who said that on the bus in Japan, if you're taking a public bus and an elder person, someone who's older than you, walks in, you stand up and you give them your seat. That doesn't happen in America. That is not a value that we come across. And so we maybe we treat each other with the respect. Maybe we don't. But I think what we do, try to do at least, is treat each other equally. Yeah, equal, I think that's different than equality of outcome. That's equality of opportunity, meaning that at face value, each person disregarding anything is judged as an equal up forefront, and then they go through the process of either putting in the work or not, and then we judge. Okay, okay, yeah, not equality of outcome, equality of opportunity. We'll go with that. I think there's also a social equality that manifests itself, but but we don't have to expound on that any further. But as I was saying, Americans value equality largely because the people who founded our country did, right? In the Declaration of Independence, we say, mm-hmm. we, Thomas Jefferson states, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Created and so equal. we have... Right. Americans value equality because they believe that God views all humans alike without regard to intelligence, physical condition, or economic status. That's actually a quote from Robert Coles' article. So, in other words, because the majority of Americans make sense of reality by asserting the existence of the Creator who creates men as equals— the American culture has come to value equality as a fundamental principle. And so we have culture, right? Mm-hmm. Founded on beliefs that shapes values. And then, so a culture provides those within its culture, those, those partakers of that culture with their values. And the members then, having obtained these values, are faced with the task of owning and living up to these values. So as a result, values tend to manifest themselves in behavioral norms, right? In behavioral patterns. Americans, 
and this is quoting Coles again, have a tendency, uh, sorry, have an aversion to treating people of high position in a deferential manner, kind of like I was just talking about. And conversely, often treat lower class people as if they were very important. So what he's saying then is that Americans have a tendency more than other countries, more than countries in the East, to treat each other equally, right? Valuing equality, Americans treat each other in accordance with this principle. And so going back to what I was saying earlier, culture begets certain values, and in the same way, these values shape behavioral patterns. And because of this, it's possible to actually look at behavioral patterns and work backwards right, to determine the values of a certain country or the values of a certain culture. Mm -hmm. And you said that culture was a response to the existential problems. Is that what you said? Right. So culture, and I'll read the quote again, is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existential situations that confront all human beings in the passage of their lives. Isn't that, what is the is, existential situation? What is the existential problem? It's what I talked about G.K. Chesterton saying that life is nearly intelligible. It's nearly reasonable, reasonable but not quite. Okay. Isn't, Therefore, in response to this problem, as a collective group, when we are confronted with this problem collectively, we have a tendency to form cultures as as sort of the grounds upon upon which we can answer these problems. Okay, okay. But if that's the case, doesn't mean that mean that culture will never provide the answer because you define existentialism as, I'm going to read it here, a philosophical theory or approach that emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will. That seems like a collective evidence answer to an individualist problem um well but at the same time I, I i see what you're saying but states right groups can also be seen as individuals right like the the theory of exactly. realism or political realism states that individual or states can be viewed as states individual act. actors yeah states act according to their own yeah right so if you look at the overall system the over the overall global system or the overall system of a of a certain group right you can you can divide that system into individual groups right so <laughs> humans are individuals and in, i think the purest sense because we're indivisible right we cannot be divided any further mm -hmm. groups are an individual in a different sense because they're individual groups they're not necessarily pure individuals right but you can say they are distinct okay i i agree and i think we can see this in the bible with the individualist and group dualist mentality meaning the nation of israel and the individual believer yeah i think that's a good point and i think we've talked about i don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or not but in the old testament 
the the parallels between the Old and New Testament, except the Old Testament has the emphasizes the nation of Israel, whereas the New Testament emphasizes the individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Okay. Okay. So in a culture that does not value the values of the Bible, how is one to act? <laughs> have I ever have I talked about how there are three spheres of philosophy? Well, uh, no. So this is something I get from Ravi Zacharias. He talks about how there are three levels at which philosophy comes to us. The first one precedes the other two, and and that is theory, philosophical theory, right? The 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 system itself, the assumptions that we declare are self-evident and taken for granted and from from which we work to certain conclusions, okay? So we have philosophy that comes to us at theory. Okay. Then we have philosophy that comes through us through illustrations, through arts, through real-life events, okay? Okay. And, and this is sort of the world we perceive around us and and take uh, a certain TV show, right? That TV show is going to present itself to you as you watch it with a certain philosophy behind it. And that's because the, the creator of the TV show has his own philosophy about how he lives. And that's, that's sort of an assumption is that everyone has a philosophy by which they live regardless of, you can, of if you can state it or not. Whether you can state it or not, you have one, right? Kind okay. of like the principle that everyone worships something. Okay. So you have philosophy that comes to us at theory, and then you have philosophy that comes through us at illustration. Okay. And, and as as far as I can get a feel on this, practicality, right? And then third level, you have philosophy that comes through comes to us through prescription, right? Through prescribing what to do in certain situations. And so this would come to us in the form of someone asking us a question and, and someone, someone posing a hypothetical situation on us and asking us what we would do, right? This is a prescriptive scenario. This is a scenario in which we have to prescribe outcome based on the philosophy that we live in. So we have philosophy that comes to us first at theory, then at illustration and, and practical events, right? Then at, and when I say illustration and practical events, I mean the world around us as we perceive it. And then at prescription, at prescribing what to do, okay? And I'm, I'm still working on getting a full grasp on the second level, but that's what I have right now. So, so will your question was how do we live in a world right that doesn't have christian values right mm -hmm. i think we have to recognize that the problem isn't a prescriptive problem the problem is not going back to existentialism maybe the problem isn't an existential problem maybe the problem isn't one that 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 
is only found in existence and only found in, in perceiving reality itself. Maybe the problem is a little bit deeper than an existential problem. Maybe the problem is a theoretical problem, right? Because the theory that we live by affects the way we live. And so how do we, how do we live in a world that doesn't have, that doesn't prescribe actions in the same way we do? I think we recognize that this is the case precisely because we have different theories of philosophy. We, and, and in having different theories of philosophy, we have different values as well. And so then from there, I, the problem is a different one. The problem is not an existential problem getting people to act in a certain way. The problem is a convincing problem. The problem is a worldview problem. The problem is telling someone, it's not that what you're doing is wrong, it's that what you think about what you're doing is wrong. Okay. Ding, ding, the ding. problem lies in your reason, not necessarily in your will. But problems and reasoning definitely affect problems in the will as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why there's a problem with the soul morality preaching of the church, meaning that they emphasize actions rather than heart. It says in the Bible repeatedly over and over and over, I value mercy, not sacrifice. That's what God says. Right. He, he cares right. about our hearts. And I think, despite for the many things that I disagree with Kierkegaard on, I think he recognizes that it's all about our motivations. It's about why we do what we do that's so important. Because the why, A, influences how we do something. You say that over and over, John. And also, the why is what we stand on. See, that's where Nietzsche went wrong. Right. There's nothing to stand on. The why is a loop. Why? Because me. Well, why you? Because me. Well, why you? Because me. That's wrong. But with right. and as firm, humans, our task, our task is not necessarily to define the why. To right, but to our live task it out is to just work from yes, right. Exactly. So that's the fundamental difference between these two, and that's that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it today. Is for whoever's listening that if you're struggling to know why you're here, why even bother. Just know that this may not seem comforting at first, but if you really truly think about it, I think you'll find comfort that you will never be able to answer on your own strength the why. But that's okay right. because God has answered it. Right. That's good. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, no, I think... I think that wraps it up pretty well, unless there's anything else you want to say. No. All right. Well, I'll see you, John. All right. Bye, Will. Bye. Bye.